Hey, good morning, 9 a.m. How are you guys doing? Doing all right. I Listen, you're singing beautifully on a cold day to come out for church. I noticed it took you all a little bit longer to get in today because the coffee was a little bit more um, in demand, I think. I... Is this just a California car thing? My car freaks out when it's under 40 degrees. It's got bells and whistles like, it's under 40, what are you gonna do? Like, I think people live in cold weather more than us, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, thank you for being here. Really, um, really excited about it. And I'm really excited about the Kids Worship Day that's gonna happen next week. And if you haven't been over to our kids programs and see what's happening, over 100 kids every single week, worshiping, praising God, have a f- having a phenomenal time. I just wanna thank Pastor Karen and the, um, all the volunteers that she has, all the parents that get engaged and work. Yeah, it's really, it's really incredible. It really is. And so thank you for those of you who bring your kids there, for those of you who help, and certainly Pastor Karen for all the work that she's doing. It's really, really wonderful. Um, when I began to study theology, I often had a question of relevancy, right? Like, what, is, what does this really matter? But to be fair, I had that question a lot when I was going to school. I remember sitting in my first algebra class thinking, nah, I'm never going to use this. You know, and that was prophetic because I have not <laughs> purposefully, and I didn't really know how to do it anyway. But a lot of the classes that I would take, I would think, I don't know, is this really relevant to anything? I mean, I took Canterbury Tales, medieval lit, right? And, and I thought, I'm never going to use this again. And weirdly, I have. Who knew that I would use Canterbury Tales again? That's, it's good fodder for preaching, actually. Um, and sometimes it's the aggregate of knowledge that begins to make it relevant, right? Um, I didn't, not every class in college was relevant, but the whole body of knowledge helped me become the person that I became, and there was some relevancy within that. And relevancy is what we're talking about this week, because this end statement, our third end statement says, Crosswalk will be relevant in living out the ways of Jesus in our place and time. This is our end statement, the third one. Another way to say it is we will live out who, what, and how Jesus lived in 2023 in Redlands, California, in New England, in Chattanooga, in LA, in Portland, etc., etc., in Houston, etc., on and on. And this is really Christological work, having to find out what was the Jesus Way. So, like, let's ask that question, right? What are the ways of Jesus? Now, I, I played basketball in the 80s when I was in high school, and of course, we all loved Michael Jordan. Even if you didn't like the Bulls, you loved watching Michael Jordan play. It was artistry, it was, it was a masterpiece, it was magnificent. And so we all wanted to be like Mike, right? There was even, I think, a, an advertisement that said, hey, be like Mike, and, you know, they did it tongue-in-cheek because they're like, you're never going to be like Mike, but we, we wanted to be, right? And so, so, you know, we'd get to practice early. We'd do an extra thousand free throws, which for some reason never really helped me. Um, we ran on our own. We did everything that we could do. We wanted to be the way of Mike. Um, now, there wasn't a Latin term for it, but there is a Latin term for the way of Jesus. And it's Christologia Viatorum, right? Christology of the way. It really points beyond itself and draws people towards the future that Christ set in place by what he did so that they remain on Christ's path and move forward with it. And we talk about the way of Jesus and the ways of Jesus 
So why do we say the way? Well, we all know the verse, right? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, you've got to remember that this phrase is kind of an unqualified statement. Jesus is not necessarily saying, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He's not even saying, even though this is the way we translate it in English, the way, the truth, and the life. What he's actually saying is, I am way, truth, and life. I am everything that is in this direction, in this way. Let me give you an example. You go to a party and you meet someone, and I, I don't know if women ask these same questions, but men always ask the question, what do you do, right? And if someone says, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor, that's, that's general, right? I mean, relatively specific, but relatively general. I'm a doctor. Great, you're a doctor. What kind of doctor are you? Whatever. Um, if you were to answer that question like this, hey, what do you do for a living? And you said, I'm the doctor, that means something else. Right? All of a sudden, you're being pretty specific. I am the doctor. If you met someone at a party and they said, what do you do? And you said, I am medicine. <laughs> that would mean something significantly more. Big, universal. That's what Jesus was saying. I am way truth and life. And in fact, the early followers of Jesus were followers of the way, right? Followers of the way of Jesus. We didn't call them Christians at this point. We called them followers of the way. But you have to understand, the way is not just access to God, but the way that we live our lives trying to be as Jesus was. And this is an important point. We have access to all who God is through Jesus. We know that from Colossians. But we also have a model and a value system which to live our lives. It also makes it possible to understand that the path of Christ is the way of leading us from resurrection to the second coming, right? The way is not just access to God, but the way we live our lives. The way he takes the spirit first to Israel, then to the nations, and then to all the world, and then to the breadth and the depth of the cosmos. That's what we're supposed to live. And it shows us a path that is reasonable to take. Now, we all remember these we always remember these bracelets, right? The what would Jesus do bracelets? We all had them at some point. And I never thought that was a fair question, right? Because I'm not Jesus. And so what would Jesus do? He would turn, you know, water to wine. I, I can't do that. What would Jesus do? He would, you know, if he, if he wanted to, he could change those stones to bread. I know what Jesus would do. The real question was, what would I do if I were in the situation? And I love Jesus, Right? The way of Jesus shows us that there's a reasonable path to take. And I got to tell you, a Christology of the way, a Christology of the ways of Jesus and the way that Jesus went means it reminds us that we're not home yet. This means we know that we are limited in the ways that we keep what Jesus kept. So we keep searching. We keep walking. And, and it's important to understand this. The ways of Jesus are more than just the beginning of eschatology, right? We are an end-time people. We've always been an end-time people. We're, our church started from a mistake about the end of time. We thought 1844, that was it. It was done. And then we're like, well, 
that was wrong. Um, and then we had to figure out, but we're still like, no, we're still living in the end time. We're an end time people. And oftentimes we have dealt with the ways of Jesus as just uh, kind of an escape route to get us to our eschatology, to get us to the end of time. But that's, the ways of Jesus are more than just an eschatology, right? Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, The Way of Jesus Christ, says every human Christology is a Christology of the way, not yet a Christology of the home country, a Christology, a Christology of faith, yet a Christology of sight. So Christology is more than the beginning of eschatology, and eschatology, as the Christian faith understands it, is always a consumption of Christology. In other words, when we think about eschatology, we think about the consummation of Jesus in the world. It begins with Jesus and our eschatology ends with Jesus. We say it this way, he's the message and the messenger, the center and circumference of our faith, right? It is certainly all about Jesus. But all this leads us, the idea of a Christology of the way means that there's more work to be done in understanding the life and teachings of Jesus. And that's important for us to understand. Because even if you've been a Christian, you know, your entire life, if you've grown up in church and you were baptized in church and you've been going to church and you've never faltered from that practice, it doesn't mean that you have plumbed the depths of who Jesus is. It doesn't mean when that next series on the Gospel of Matthew shows up that you go, oh, I've heard this story before. I don't need to see it again. And some of us are funny, right? Some of us don't like reruns. There are some of us who will watch The Office nine or ten times, right? In fact, for some of us, The Office got us through the pandemic. But like my wife, she doesn't ever want to see something twice. She's like, oh, we saw that already. I'm like, I know, it's so good. And she's like, why would I watch it again? I know what's going to happen. I'm like, oh, that's not the point. It's like the journey. And she's like, yeah, I'm not interested in that with you, which is painful sometimes. Um, just, just for the record, we're only talking about like reruns. We're not talking about life. We're doing that journey together. And we seem very happy about that. Um, so, so it means there's a lot of work to be done in understanding the life and teachings of Christ. This is why we delve deeply into it all the time. And we will continue to do that all the time. Because there's also something else. Not only do we know that we need to learn more, but there's also something else. Every time we talk about the way of Jesus, it is an invitation for others to follow Jesus as well. In that way, it helps us be part of that great commission of God to go and preach into all the world. Because a way, by definition, is something to be followed. Anyone who enters upon Christ's way will discover who Jesus really is. And anyone who really believes in Jesus as the Christ of God will follow him along the way that he himself took. And we know this, that the way of Christ is a living way, right? An account of Christ presupposes a living faith in him. Christian faith is alive where men and women confess that Jesus is Lord, and we see this in Scripture, right? John eleven twenty seven. 27, before the raising of Lazarus, we hear one of Jesus' favorite people say, yes, Lord, she told him, I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. 
And later on in Matthew 16, 16, we see Simon Peter answering God when they were at Caesarea Philippi when he asked the question, who do people say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. The way of Jesus is a living way. We serve a living God. Christianity itself is alive as long as there are people who confess Christ as Lord. But just so you know, this is not a blind belief in who Jesus is and what he did. I mean, we're 2,000 years away, but you understand that the words that we read about Jesus, the things that we know about Jesus from his life came from a perception of Jesus that was real and true. It wasn't, it wasn't a, well, I guess this is what he did. It was a, well, 1 John 1.1 says it really beautifully. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, who we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This stresses more strongly that Christ is perceived and has been perceived with all of the senses, hearing, sight, and touch. Christ is perceived. He was there. They were with him. It continues on in 1 John 1, 2. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. This perception of God that comes from God revealed to us through God and through Jesus. This is revelation and inspiration. If, if you've fallen in love with someone, like a real person, you know that sometimes that inspires you to do weird things, right? Sometimes it inspires the, the toughest and the roughest of us to write poetry to this person that we've fallen in love with, to write a song, to paint a picture. We understand that when we've experienced real love and not just talked about it, not just heard about it, but when we've experienced it as, as real, as we've perceived it in touch and sight and sound, we know it inspires us, and this is why people wrote about the ways of Jesus, because they were inspired by his love, and they had seen it and heard it and perceived it. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually, it's almost like, it's almost like John is pleading like, hey, we're not making this stuff up. You need to know that we experienced this, we perceived it. We've seen it and heard it so that we, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim what we know to be true about Christ. So we're serving a living way when we talk about the way of Jesus. And just so you know, there's a prophetic element to living the way of Jesus, to knowing it, to preaching it, and to really honestly living it. All of this is prophetic in nature, making a way for Jesus in the world. And I have to tell you this, prophets were always relevant to their time. Prophets were always relevant to their time because if you notice, when you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, they were not speaking of an eschaton the vast majority of the time. They were speaking to what was happening right then 
You have Hosea saying things like, God is not interested in your sacrifices anymore. He wants justice. He wants mercy. He wants compassion from you. This is better than all the gifts that you're giving him. Why don't you do that? Because you've forgotten. He's speaking to real people in real time. You want a really easy example of this? Let's take a look at Jonah. We all know that story, right? Jonah and the whale. It starts like this. The Lord gave his message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. And go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. He didn't send Jonah there because things were great. So that the message would be irrelevant. He didn't say, hey, they're doing pretty well. Just course correct a little bit. What he did is he said, Jonah, we got a problem. You need to go and speak relevant words. Prophetic words were always relevant to the people they were given to. They were specific for them. And certainly we can learn universal principles out of them and values out of them, but they were specific. Jonah went to Nineveh because Nineveh was a problem and he spoke relevant words that they listened to because they knew there was a problem going on. So when you live, preach, teach, speak the ways of Jesus into the world, you are being prophetic and relevant to today's world. Speaking of the way of Jesus is always relevant. You want to know why? And I think this is probably something you know. Because the way of Jesus is always love. And love is always relevant. I can quote you verse after verse of the love and inclusivity that the way of Jesus brings to us. Again and again, Jesus in his life did not keep people out of the kingdom of God, but invited them into that love. Did not protect ritual and piety, rather invited the least of these into a communion and fellowship with him so they might experience love, a love that they hadn't experienced before. When we live the way of Jesus, not only is it prophetic, so it will be relevant, it's also relevant because love is always relevant. How many of you would like less love in your life right now? Just, it's okay, just raise your hand and say, like, I don't. And if there's somebody who loves you right next to you, enjoy lunch. <laughs> None of us are gonna say that because love is always relevant. Here's a good example. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus, always the most compelling person in the room, calls Matthew. Matthew responds. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners Christians love to quote this kind of stuff. We love to quote this kind of stuff as we are absolutely keeping people out of the kingdom of God. But we love the fact that Jesus sat down with disreputable people. We love that fact. We just don't want to have to do it ourselves. But when you think about this, do you ever wonder why Matthew wasn't ashamed to bring these people to Jesus? I mean, Jesus put no shame on him and he must have put no shame on anyone that Matthew said, you know what, Jesus is gonna love these people. People that everybody else hates, 
Jesus is going to be fine with them. Jesus, Matthew didn't have a problem bringing because Jesus would put no shame on these people. He felt comfortable bringing these other people around Jesus. You know, one of the things that we say here at Crosswalk is that our, one of our brand promises is that we will not embarrass you when you bring someone to church. Somebody who hasn't been to church before, somebody who's not even sure what church is about. Somebody who maybe goes to a different faith community or is even from a different faith tradition. We always say, listen, we're a community of belonging. Anybody can walk in here and feel comfortable for the most part, we hope. Right? If they don't like the music, maybe they'll like the coffee. If they don't like the coffee, maybe they'll like the preaching. If they don't like the preaching, at least they'll be greeted warmly. It comes from this idea that everyone should have access to the kingdom of God, that everyone should be able to experience love, and there should be no shame in that. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. He felt comfortable bringing these people around Jesus because he did not worry about whether or not Jesus would love them. He knew that Jesus' love would be relevant in their lives. And it might even connect with them in such a way that they not just repent of their sins, but they follow Jesus in his way as well. But religious people have issues with this, right? But when the Pharisees saw, heard this, they, sorry, I think I jumped ahead too quickly. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such, and I love the way the New Living Translation translates it, scum. That's not, that's, that's a big word, right? That's rough. Why would Jesus sit with these people, right? The pious can't understand it. They think that what brushes across their elbow is what makes them unholy. If only it were that simple, then we as believers could just simply stay away from the things that might sully us, from the things that might get scum upon us. But Jesus says this later on, like you're okay with cleaning the outside, but it's your heart that's the problem. This is why a message of love is relevant even within the church because we know how dirty our hearts are. And we know we need forgiveness and love and grace. Then Jesus says this to them. He goes, listen, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Now, it sounds like he's almost letting them off a hook, right? It sounds like he's like, well, you're healthy people, so you don't really need a doctor. But keep reading. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. He's telling the experts in the law, um, you need to go back and read scripture because apparently you don't understand it, Right? I want to show, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus subversively rebukes the religious leaders and tells them that their theology is wrong. And he tells them that in no uncertain terms. Why don't you go learn the scriptures that you think you know? How would you feel if this is what Jesus said to you? right? Go learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a partial quote, by the way, from Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
Hosea speaking prophetically to the religious people of his time. You're missing the point of love. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders at his time. You're missing the point of love. Religion is irrelevant to your life. Let's just own that. It's going to look different. Different churches look different. In 10 years, it's going to look different. In 20 years, it's going to look different. Religion is irrelevant to your life. But the love it talks about is vital to you being a whole person. So I don't care what form it comes in. If it doesn't speak of the love of Jesus, it's missing the point. It's of no efficacy. It's great exercise. It's even good fellowship at times. It may make us feel good, but if it is not completely flooded with the love of Jesus, it's a lot of work for no kingdom return. And unfortunately, we see more and more people leaving churches. The statistics are shocking. But you know that those people aren't leaving the love that they're seeking, right? You understand that. They're just not finding it in their houses of worship. Their houses of worship cease to be houses of healing, cease to be places where the miracle of love is experienced. And they've become wonderful places to hang out, but not wonderful places to experience the love of Christ. Listen, basically, Jesus is accusing these religious leaders of being more concerned with outward appearances and practices and observances than they are the far more important matters of justice and mercy and love. He does this again quite directly in Matthew 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Anybody have an herb garden? They're not large. They usually sit above your kitchen sink and you get way too much dill. Why is that the only thing that grows? Right? You, you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the most important things. Jesus is reminding them that the measure of the law will always be love. It will always be mercy. It will always be compassion and justice and faith. And just for the record, people who are involved in these weightier things, in love, in justice and mercy and compassion and faith, they don't forget to tithe. In fact, chances are those people who have experienced the love of God are the ones who are the most committed to church. They're the ones who are the most committed to making sure everyone experiences the love that they've experienced. The truth is this, the way of Jesus is relevant because love is relevant. We often think of sin as our actions, but perhaps sin is a discernible lack of love in the way that we live, the way that we treat others, and the way that we withhold the love of God from some. Because if love is to be relevant, relevant love is inclusive. This is why I love that our first end statement is that we will be a community of belonging. 
where all is welcome, but there are implications. And the implications are that we have to love those we might not be comfortable with. And we have to love those who we don't, you know, normally fit into our social circles. And we have to love those who feel different or seem different than us. And we have to love them, not pretend to love them. I was, I was writing this sermon and um, I just kept thinking back to a movie I had seen quite a few years ago. And um, the, reason why I, the reason why this movie always sticks out is twofold. Number one, it's pretty powerful. But number two, my wife and I went to see it on an anniversary weekend. You know, this sweet, wonderful anniversary. We had this wonderful meal. We're going to go see this wonderful movie. It's going to be a great weekend. Um, it's so hard to watch this movie. It's so difficult that it was not a movie you want to see on it. It was not a rom-com. It's, the movie is called Silence. And it's about 17th century monks that go to Japan. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's not a short watch and it's not an easy watch. It was written, it was from a book that was written in 1966 by, I can never, the, the author's last name is Endo. His first name is very Japanese and I don't want to destroy it. So when it shows up on the screen, you can read it. But he talks about the Christians that were in Japan at the time. And some of these crypto Christians had been from a few centuries previous and some had been from like the seventh century and they were still practicing Christianity. Although by the 17th century, it was now illegal in Japan. And this is really a story kind of based on, based on fact, but, but, you know, fictionalized about the last few priests that were in Japan still. But in one of his quotes, he says this, sin, he reflected, is not what it is usually thought to be. It is not to steal and tell lies. Sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and to be quite oblivious of the wounds he has left behind. Shisako Endo in his book, Silence. So the question really is this. Because I think churches do this, and I think church people do this sometimes. I think we walk brutally over other people, and we don't even know that we're doing it. And if you don't think I'm right, then explain to me the statistics of people leaving, of people not feeling love and not experiencing the way of Jesus through the people in the church. The question we have to ask is this, what kind of love has your Christology led you to live? Is it a Christology of the way where you are seeking to live in the ways and places of Jesus in our time and space? And listen, we can go back and talk about the process of being relevant and why when Paul goes to Mars Hill and he uses their idols to talk about who God is and see we can do things, we can change things and make it relevant. It's not about the process, even though I think that's important. It's about the love that people experience. How has your understanding of Christ changed the way that you live and love in the world? Are you the same as you were before you met Christ or has that love transformed your heart and opened it up to compassion you didn't know you have? How has your knowledge of Jesus changed the way that you live? 
This is why we keep going back to the ways of Jesus. And we keep reading and studying again and we go deeper and deeper into who Jesus is, understanding his life and his teachings so that we can understand what our life and our teachings should be. Crosswalk will be relevant in living out the ways of Jesus in our place and time. How do we do that in community? What does that look like? Listen, I've got all sorts of ideas. But you need to look into your hearts and let God guide you as individuals and as community. But it means this. You've got to be willing to listen, to see, to learn, and to perceive who Jesus is. And I'll leave you with one theological word. What is your Christopraxy? What is your practice of the way of Jesus? Relevant, inclusive. It will be overwhelming and it will be unreasonable because it has been for you. This is love. And this is what it means to love well. Putting the way the practices of Jesus into our practices and our way of living. This is a declaration that we will never stray far from who Jesus was and is. This is a dangerous statement to make for a church because it means that we can't shy away from a love that the Pharisees didn't understand, from sitting down with what the New Living Translation translated as scum. And it's also a recognition that sometimes that's us. And it's only by the grace of God that we have fellowship with Him and with one another as well. So for us to never become arrogant, never to become haughty, never to become so pious that there's someone Christ's love can't touch through us. I think about this statement and I think, man, I wish, <laughs> I almost wish we hadn't have said it because that's a promise we make to the world that you can find love here. We have to be willing to do that. Because when we put ourselves on a line like that and say we will love, people will hold us to it. But that's all right. We never do it alone. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, it's by your grace we've been saved and it's by your love we feel any sort of acceptance or belonging at all. So may we be that to other people and for other people. If we're going to be relevant, Lord, let our love be relevant. Let us be prophetic in the ways we speak into people's lives. But Lord, let that prophetic word become love in their life so that they understand who you are through us. And Lord, thank you for making your love relevant in our lives so we don't walk away from it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.